We're in Acts chapter 20 this morning, page 929. We're going to read a story later in Paul's life. I'm going to begin reading in the 17th verse of Acts chapter 20. You follow along as I read out loud. Luke records, Now from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews." How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city, that imprisonment and inflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of our Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it's more blessed to give than receive. And when he had said these things, Paul knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Blessed are those who hear it and obey it. Acts has been about the spread of the gospel, the continuing ministry of Jesus through the church 
even though he's no longer present here on earth. The work of Jesus did not end with his ascension back to heaven after the resurrection. The ministry of the church, the ministry and the work of Jesus continues. The power of the Holy Spirit is seen in us. We've seen how the gospel has come up against numerous barriers, numerous hindrances. And every time through the power of the Spirit, the gospel was able to get over that barrier, that hindrance, and to continue to move on. Paul now, toward the end of his life, realizes he is at the end of his life. He's on this journey to Rome. He, he doesn't expect that he will survive. And so he calls the leaders from the church at Ephesus to come to talk to him one last time. And this is what he says to them, the passage that we just read. These are his farewell words to these people that he does not expect to see again. And what we see is Paul is sharing his heart with them. He is not their father, but he has acted like their spiritual father. He's been that influence in their lives. This morning, since it's Father's Day, I'm going to be speaking to fathers. But as is usually the case, what I say to the dads can also be applied to moms. So ladies, you are welcome to listen in to what I say to the men. It's okay for your husband if he's sitting there beside you for to give him one of those you know, nudges when I say something that you want him to pay special attention to. Try to not be so hard, though, that he yelps when you do it, all right? I'm probably going to say some things this morning that will upset you, at least make you uncomfortable. Good. If you don't feel uncomfortable at the end of this sermon, it's probably because you weren't paying attention. So pay attention. I'm going to be talking generically about our children and the influence that we have with them. But for many of us, we have transitioned from parent into grandparent. And God still expects us to be an influence in the lives of our children and our grandchildren. So even if you don't have children at home, you are still to be part of the process that God uses to affect their lives. It will be too cumbersome for me to just keep saying children and grandchildren. So when I say children, hear me saying both children and grandchildren. What we're to do as parents, as grandparents, is to shape, to be part of the process of shaping our children. To some extent, to have an influence in how they turn out. It's true that many problems start at home. Do you want to argue that point today? How many children do we see having trouble today and you can trace it directly back to the home where they started? That isn't always the case, but it often is true. When a 21-year-old man walks into a church and kills nine people, we aren't going to blame his parents for what he did. We don't know what influence they had on this obviously troubled person. 
But we're also not going to go to the other extreme and say that these parents had no effect on their son either. In our hearts, we know that parents affect their children. That we influence them. We influence the direction that they go in life. If we didn't believe that, why do we try to affect them? Why do we try to influence them? Why do we push them in the right direction if we believe it doesn't matter? Because in our hearts, we know it does. And since it's true that parents influence their children, we're going to look at this passage today with a particular view of trying to find out how Paul was influential in the lives of these people that he's talking to. Not as their physical father, their earthly father, but as a spiritual father. And we can learn from how he was influential in their lives. And the reason why Paul's words here are so important is because what Paul is saying is not just what he told them with his mouth, it's also what he told them with his life. His words had so much more weight because Paul practiced what he preached. Too many times as parents we talk a good game, but we don't live it. So we're going to spend less time talking about what you ought to say to your children... We're going to talk about this morning how you ought to be living, what you should be showing them with your life. Now, to judge the influence that you're having on your children, on your grandchildren, I'm going to ask you six questions this morning. You're like, oh my gosh, a six-point sermon. We're never getting out of here. Trust me, it's not going to be that long. But I do want you to take your worship order and I want you to flip it over. I want you to write these six questions down. You're going to see why later in the service. The first question that you want to ask yourself with regard to how you are influencing your children is the question, who do you treat differently? Who do you treat differently? Paul says in this passage, he said, I preach the gospel to everyone. Gentiles and Jews alike. He didn't show favoritism and preach the gospel to some. He didn't show neglect to others by not preaching to them. He said, I preach to everyone, regardless of their nationality, regardless of their genetics, where they came from. Look at your life. How do your children see you treating people? Who do you treat differently? You see, we all have that circle in our lives, family, friends, close people in our lives, those that we like and those that like us. And we treat that inner circle, those that are close to us, one way. That's not the question, though, of how you treat those who are your friends. The question is, how do you treat people who aren't part of that inner circle? How are you partial towards some over others? Now, let's be honest. I suppose it's impossible for us to treat everyone exactly the same. I get that. But what we're really talking about is the exaggerated difference. Some people we are very close to, and other people we won't give the time of day. Right? 
Jesus teaches us that who we are is seen not in how we treat our friends and our family. Jesus basically said, if you treat your friends well, big deal. He said, even non-believers do that much. The test of who you are as a Christian is how you treat your enemies. Well, preacher, I thought we weren't supposed to have enemies. Well, we're not, but we don't get to choose because some people don't like us. Right? Some people choose to be our enemies whether we want it or not. The question is, how do we treat those people? And Paul says, I treated everyone impartially. Jews, Gentiles, the same. And when our children see us treating some people significantly different than others, what message are we sending to them? What does that tell them about our changed heart? The changed heart that we're supposed to have because of Jesus Christ. Because if we only love those who love us and we hate those who hate us, how did Jesus change your heart? Isn't that what everybody does? This young man in South Carolina this past week who killed nine African Americans. Did he learn to hate blacks because of his parents? We don't know. But it's pretty obvious he didn't learn to love blacks from his parents, did he? They may not have taught him to kill blacks, but they sure didn't teach him to love African Americans, did they? And when we grow up thinking that it's okay to love some and not love others, we're giving our children the wrong message. And sadly, racism is learned at home. We went to the fair a couple of years ago with Hannah. And we took the neighbor kid from upstairs and brought him along with us. And We're standing there and Hannah jumps on the ride. And next thing I know, there's this little black girl sitting in the middle of the two kids that we brought with us. And they're just talking and laughing like nothing. And I'm thinking to myself, don't they know they're supposed to hate each other? What's wrong with them? And when we, they got off the ride and, and we started walking, the, the little kid said to his mom, I want to go with them. <laughs> they didn't even know us. But that's the way it's supposed to be. Our children are to grow up seeing there's absolutely no difference. Look at your kids. Are your kids and grandkids racist? Where'd they get that? And let's not make this a white versus black thing. Because we all know just as many black people who have problems with whites too. We don't own racism. What influence are you having with your children with regard to how you treat others? What did your children learn from you? From watching how you treat people who are different from you? That's the first question. Second question. What drives you? Question number two. What drives you? Look at verse 35. 
Paul said, in all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of our Lord Jesus, how he said it is more blessed to give than receive. Paul was a hard worker. Are you? Not just a hard worker at your job. Are you a hard worker in the church? Got quiet in here, didn't it? When was the last time your children or your grandchildren saw you working hard in the church? Do your children see you working in the church or do they just see you attending church? Do your children see you working with others to get the work of Christ done? Or do they see you sitting watching other people do the work? You see, what we work hard at reveals our heart, what we're passionate about. If you ask your children, what would they tell you your passions are? Would they say it's God? You see, we need to ask the question this morning, how far would the gospel have gotten in Paul's day if Paul had our level of commitment? And Paul even said, I want you to remember, I didn't covet any of your stuff. I worked hard to meet my necessities and the necessities of those around me. Paul wasn't just saying, I didn't want your stuff. He was also saying that he wasn't driven by a desire for more stuff. How many people do we know? Are you one of them? Who don't come to church regularly because, oh, preacher, I hear this so often. Oh, preacher, I I can't come to church on Sundays. That's my only day to sleep in. Ever hear that one? And then the boss asks you on Friday or Saturday if you'd work on Sunday. Well, yeah. And you'll be at work on Sunday earlier than you would have had to come to church. But hey, right? There's money involved with that one. Do your children see that your driving passion in life is money. Stuff. What do your children see you working for? Working hard at? Do your children see that money isn't the most important motivator for you? Or the song we sang this morning about Christ being our all. Do your children see that? Or do they see you willing to jump at a moment's notice if you can make some cash? But when there's something to be done at the church, when it comes to serving the Lord, you've always got excuses. What do you work hard at in your life? 
You see, when your children see you being materialistic, don't be surprised when they are materialistic too. Look at verse 24. Paul said in verse 24, he said, I do not account my life of any value. I don't account my life as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus. Oh, that our children today could see their fathers with this kind of passion for the work of God. The way that we see this with Paul. That they could see that in us too. Too often our children hear us talk a good game, but they don't see us actually working very hard in the Lord's fields. They certainly don't see us working as hard for God as they see us working for money. Question three. What do you cry about? Twice in this passage, Paul references the time that he was with those people weeping. What do you cry about? Do your children see you weeping over them and the choices that they're making? The direction that they're going? It's not just about sadness, though. What emotions do your children see you have? You see, it's not just what upsets us in a sad way, but what about what upsets you in an angry way? What do your children see you getting angry about? What about forgiveness? Bitterness, resentments that we hold on to. When our children see us being petty and unforgiving, what are we teaching them? When you see your children being petty and unforgiving, are you sure they didn't learn that from you? Look at the wonderful Christian response that we're seeing from the people in South Carolina today. Amazing. I don't know if I could do that. But I do know that that's what we're supposed to do. Could you be standing there in front of a judge days after one of your loved ones was killed and say, I forgive you? You see, our heart is where the real person resides. We can put on masks that hide or try to hide what we care about. Or we can use words to cover up how we're feeling. But when we drill down into our hearts, inside the heart, that's the real deal. That's who we really are. Our emotions reveal what we care about. You see, we don't get upset about things we don't care about. We don't cry about things that we don't care about. 
When was the last time you cried about the Lord's work? When was the last time you were upset about the Lord's work not getting done? We have feelings. Lots of feelings. But we're pretty apathetic. No feeling when it comes to the God stuff. We want things to be done. We just don't want to be the ones who done them. Let somebody else do it. What do you cry about? What upsets you? Question four. What causes you to pull back? Look at verse 27. Paul talked about how he didn't shrink. Twice in the passage he says, I didn't shrink back from telling you the truth. What causes you to pull back? Paul knew that he was saying things that people wouldn't like. He knew when he was telling Jews that they needed to commit their life to Christ, they needed to trust in this Messiah, he knew they weren't going to be happy. They were the ones primarily who were persecuting him. And yet every time Paul went to a new city, he would go right to the synagogue, right to the Jews. He didn't pull back. He didn't shrink back from speaking the truth. He didn't pull any punches. How many times are we guilty of biting our tongues around other people? We don't want to say anything that might rock the boat or upset them. So we won't tell them the truth about the gospel. We'll come into church and we'll say that we believe that anyone who doesn't commit his or her life to Jesus Christ will spend a godless eternity in hell. That's what we say we believe. But then we won't go out and tell people that. But how many times are we guilty of shrinking back from that truth and we won't even share that with our children or our grandchildren? How many of your children know that you believe they're going to hell if they don't commit their life to Christ? That gets real, doesn't it, folks? We say we love our children. We say we love our grandchildren. But then we won't tell them the most important truth in life. What causes you to pull back? Paul faced severe persecution in his life precisely because he wouldn't pull back. He wouldn't change his message. i got to believe that he would be tempted... He wouldn't be human if he wasn't. He had to be tempted to quit it sometimes. I don't need this. We're told one time that they drug him outside of the city and stoned him to the point where he was unconscious. They thought he was dead. Otherwise, they would have kept throwing the stones to make sure he was dead. They left him there thinking he was dead when he was really unconscious. And when he came to... He dusted himself off and went to the next city and started preaching about Christ again. you got to believe that they messed him up. You don't get knocked unconscious by getting a rock in the arm. They popped him in the head. They could have knocked out some teeth, broken some bones. Right? You can imagine when he went to the next city, beaten up, bloodied, black and blue. People were saying to him, what happened to you? Well, let me tell you, I was preaching about Jesus. 
I was telling people they needed to commit their life to him. And people said, and you're still preaching about him? Is it any wonder our children don't seek commitment in us when they don't see us sticking to the task of continuing to preach the gospel even when it isn't easy? When we give up, what example are we setting for our children? This past week, Elizabeth Elliot died at the age of 88. Many of you may not know who she was. She was a missionary to South America in the 50s. She and her husband Jim were down there ministering to the tribes in Ecuador. And while they were reaching out to these tribes that had never had outside influence, her husband and four other men were killed. Years later, she went back to be a missionary in South America. Not to the tribes around where her husband was killed, to the very tribe that had killed her husband. You see, she had this crazy idea that those Indians who didn't know Christ still didn't know Christ. And the fact that they had killed her husband didn't change the fact that they needed the gospel. And so she went back and she actually talked to some of the people who were involved in killing her husband and leading them to faith in Christ. What causes you to pull back? Sometimes it's persecution, sometimes it's opposition, and sometimes it's just because the fire's gone out. How many of us have raised our children so that they see our commitment to Christ get less and less and less every year? I have people who come to me and they'll say, Oh, Pastor, I used to work hard in the church. And what I hear is, Used to. And you just confessed that you used to be more committed than you are right now, and you're okay with it. And we raise our children to see our commitment level getting less and less and less, and we don't think that's going to affect them. Where do you think your children learned mediocre faith? Usually from parents who have mediocre faith. Now, preacher, I'm going to push back on that one. You're not being fair. Because I made sure my kids were in church every Sunday. Well, now they don't come. But they used to. I used to make them come every week. Exactly. You raised children to be Sunday-only Christians, and now you're surprised when they don't even do that. You didn't lead them to be sold out to Christ seven days a week. Where did your children see the fire of Christ in you? Now what makes you think that the fire of Christ would burn hotter in your children than it burned in you? When that's the example that you set. 
Question five. What do you worry about? What are you worried about that your kids see you? They see you worrying. What do they see you worried about today? Paul said in this passage several times, I'm never going to see you again. And then he began to tell them, he said, there are going to be wolves who are going to come in here and try to destroy what God is doing in the church. Second, he said, not only will there be wolves from the outside, he said, they're going to be people, false teachers from the inside who are going to seek to lead you astray. Now, look at verse 32. In verse 32, Paul said, and now I commend you to God. In the face of this vision that God had given him, the prophecy that there were going to be wolves from the outside and false teachers from the inside, Paul says, that's okay, I'm going to commend you to God. Not because he didn't care, but because he trusted God. How often do we give to our children the picture of us not trusting God? Because we're all worked up over things in our lives, in their lives. How many of us are worried about our children even today? Rather than commending them to God. Trusting God with our children. People, if we can't trust God with our children, what can we trust Him? We tell our children that we want them to have faith and trust in God, and then when it comes to them, we worry as if, oh no, what's going to happen to them? Well, nothing that God's not going to allow to happen. And God can take care of them just like God's taking care of you. Amen? How many of us did crazy things that God protected us from? Well, the same God that could protect you from your stupidness can protect your kids and grandkids from their stupidness. Not that we don't care, but when we testify to our children that we don't trust God by our worry, what are we saying? Our children make decisions. Some good, some not so good. But being in the hand of God is not a bad place to be. If our children hear us talking about trusting God, then they ought to see that in us as we live out that faith. Finally, number six. Question six, what are you willing to die for? Verse 24 again. Paul says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. Now, I know most of us here as fathers, if not all of us here as fathers today, so listen, I would die for my kids. Amen? I would die for my kids. And you know what? Good for you. You should. And thankfully, we won't be called, any of us, probably, to ever see if that's true or not. The question, though, is not, will we die for our kids 
The question for us today is, do our kids see us willing to die for Christ? How many of our children see in us a willingness to do whatever it takes to follow Christ? And if it costs me my life, then it costs me my life. How many of our children see that kind of dedication and commitment in us? Besides, you do realize that if your children don't see you living for Christ, what makes you think they're going to believe that you would die for Christ? Come on. These six questions that you've written down, we didn't have time to look at all of them in depth. You get the idea. Take this piece of paper home with these six questions jotted on them and spend some time in prayer. God, show me how I've been influencing my children in these six areas. If you're really serious about knowing how you're doing, ask one of your friends. Ask a couple of your friends. Shove the piece of paper in their hand and say, how would you answer those questions about me? Are you with me? Where do you see my passion? What am I willing to work hard for? What am I willing to die for? What am I worried about? Ask your friends. And then... If you're really brave, ask your kids. Ask your kids how they see those answers in your life. When our children see us driven by materialism and not a desire to know Christ and be obedient to Him, how do you think you're going to influence them? To be committed to Christ. We treat the work of God as optional and unimportant. But we don't want our kids to feel that way about the work of God. Our kids aren't stupid. Do you want to be a good example to your children? To your grandchildren? Oh, preacher, of course I do. It doesn't matter what you say in here. What matters is how you live out there in front of your children, in front of your grandchildren. It's easy to say, oh, I want to be a good influence. I want to be a good example. That's easy. But a prayer of commitment saying, God, make me a better example does nothing if we're not willing to change how we live. Some of us sitting here today, though, have regrets as we look back. Oh, I wish I had been a better parent. I wish I had been a better influence. It's good to have those moments. But now is the time for us to confess and say, God, I can't change the past. But I can live for Christ going forward. I can be the example that I ought to be for my kids and my grandkids. From this point forward, for the rest of my life, I want my kids to know that Jesus comes first. Make a commitment right now that you will be the example that you ought to be in the lives of your children and grandchildren. Not just with your words, but with your actions. Let's pray. 
Father God, we are thankful for the spotlight of your Holy Spirit. As you turn that light on us and expose our failures. Where you show us where we've not been doing it right. God, our goal is not to come in here and feel miserable, feel bad about ourselves because we didn't do it right. We want to be challenged to start doing it right. With however much time we have left, God, we want to be the influence that we should be in the lives of our children and our grandchildren. God, it begins not with the right words. It begins with the right heart, with the right commitment, the right passions. God, we have to confess today that we have been too worldly. We've been too materialistic, focused on getting more stuff, living a comfortable life, that we've forgotten that there are some eyes watching us and they're picking up their values from our values. God, break our hearts so that we might be useful for You. Break our will so that we won't be so proud and go our own direction. And help us to be good examples of broken Christians who are obedient to Christ in everything. Bless us this week as we are faithful to You. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.